Let me ask you a question. Um, have you ever had any conflict in your family? No. No. Okay. No. You know it's wrong to lie in church, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, hey, Kenneth, is, is water wet? Man, is the sky blue? Man, of course. Of course we have conflict in our family. All of us do. All of us wrestle with that. That's something all of us have to experience. And in conflict, when it occurs within our family, it's painful. It's difficult to navigate. No one enjoys it. But deep down within us, we know it's not what we desire. Both believers and unbelievers have a desire for peace within their relationships. We even see this on the global stage in which the United Nations was created, where 50 countries came together so that they might solve and resolve conflict in the world. You see, there's a deep desire in the hearts of all people to have peace and unity and harmony in our relationships. Where does that desire come from? Well, as followers of Jesus, we know where it comes from. It comes from God. God himself is in perfect unity within himself. We see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. This one God is within perfect unity within himself. Within the Trinity, we don't see the Father and the Son conspiring against the Spirit. We don't see dissension or elbowing for position. There's perfect unity and harmony within God himself. And therefore, as image bearers, as those who are made in the image of God, you and I and the whole world have a desire for unity and harmony in our relationships because God has hardwired us for that exact thing. But what do you do when there's not harmony? What happens when you even have mature, faithful, humble, godly people who are in conflict? When we get to the text of Scripture today, we're about to see two people who are titans of the faith who enter into a sharp disagreement. We're going to see a sharp conflict that's going to occur. And the key is this is that when conflict happens in your life, in your marriage, in your family, even within a church, we respond in a way that honors Christ and we trust that God is up to something bigger than we can see for the fame of his name. And we see all of this in Acts chapter 15. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 15. We're going through this great historical narrative, the book of Acts together as a faith family, unpacking how the gospel that took root in Jerusalem is now multiplying outward to the ends of the earth. That indeed we're seeing the gospel multiply exponentially as disciples are being made and churches are being planted all over the world. We saw earlier in Acts 15 where there was a great conflict within the early church when there was a debate over salvation. Is salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, or is it Jesus plus something else? 
The church in Antioch wrestled through that. They sent Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem. We see where the elders, the apostles, they meet together and they come to a unanimous decision. And they say, yes, the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not Jesus plus good works. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. It's not Jesus plus obedience to the Old Testament law. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's just Jesus. Through faith in Jesus alone, that is sufficient to save. Well, we see where the letter is written from the Jerusalem council that they send back to the church at Antioch in which they give them their unanimous decision. And this letter affirmed that the gospel does not add further burdens on Gentiles, that we who are not Jewish by pedigree, we don't have to add things to the gospel, that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. However, we see where the Jerusalem council also gave instructions that even though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we are not to use grace and our freedom in Christ to be stumbling blocks to others, particularly over foods that we eat and also in regards to sexual immorality. Well, when the church at Antioch, they read the letter, when they heard about the decision, they rejoiced. They were so excited and glad to submit to the leadership of the church. Well, as Paul and Barnabas, they continued their preaching ministry there at the church at Antioch. Paul had a desire to take the gospel back to the churches that he had planted on his first missionary journey. And that's where we pick up in Acts 15, beginning with verse 36. And the scripture says this. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had, a sh they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. At the end of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas were on the brink of going on their second missionary journey. The plan was to retrace their steps from the first missionary journey to go to each of these churches and to strengthen them, to encourage them. But then a conflict occurs between Paul and Barnabas. And the plan and the team makeup changes. I want you to notice in the text what we can learn from Paul and Barnabas and how we can glorify Christ in the midst of conflict. The first thing I want you to see in the text is this. Keep your passion for the mission. Keep your passion for the mission. Verse 36, Paul says, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters. I love the word let's. The word let's is a leadership word. It's someone taking the initiative. You even see this amongst kids in a neighborhood. You find out who the leader is by the kid who says let's. Hey, let's go play ball. Hey, let's go ride bikes. Hey, let's put buckets on our heads and run into each other. The person who says let's is the leader. And see, Paul had a, a passion for the mission. He wanted to get the gospel to the nations. He wanted to see healthy churches planted and established. This is the heartbeat of Paul is to fulfill the great commission that Jesus had left for his church to do. 
In Matthew 28, before Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And remember, I will be with you even to the end of the age. This was the heartbeat of Jesus. This is the mission that we as a church are to be about. Jesus made the Great Commission as the target for churches to aim for of the task that we are to accomplish. Well, the apostle Paul, he couldn't get wait. He couldn't wait to get back on the mission field. He was eager to give back to these churches that he and Barnabas had planted to follow up with new believers, to train pastors, to correct false doctrine, to build these leaders up, to point to God's grace, to equip the church to serve, to teach churches how to pray, how to sing, how to give, how to rightly handle the scriptures. This is the passion of the Apostle Paul and Westwood, may this be our passion as well. May we continually be a people who are passionate about the mission that God has given to us in these brief temporary lives until we get to go and see him. The way that we say it here at Westwood is that Westwood exists to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. We get this from the Great Commission. We invest in people. We're about disciple making. Who will, expectation, go and take the gospel? They will impact their world for Jesus. That in as you are poured into through the church, you will go into your sphere of influence where it's on a ball field or in the music room or in the boardroom or in your community, wherever God has strategically placed you, you leverage your relationships and your resources for the sake of the mission of reaching people with the gospel. This is what we do. And we are an army of believers who love Jesus, who follow Jesus, and we want to see others come to a saving knowledge of him. And this is who we are as a church. This is our focus. This is our mission. And we must remain passionate about it. I presented to you as a church where we're going several months ago when it came to lift. I talked about how we're going to be a church that's going to lift our eyes to the harvest, looking out to the nations and our neighbors, looking to reach people with the gospel. There's three ways we're going to do this. One of the ways is through Lift Global. We just brought somebody onto our team who's going to be helping us oversee how we can mobilize our entire church to work together to get the gospel to the nations, to those who have never heard of Jesus. We have Lift Churches. We want to see healthy churches planted and established all throughout Shelby County. Tonight at five o'clock, we plant Westwood in Espanol. We get to plant a Hispanic church at five o'clock in room 213. We're beginning a brand new church plant looking to reach Spanish speaking people with the gospel. You're invited to come. I'm not sure we can all fit in the room. But we're going to, the service is going to be in Spanish, but we're going to plant a church that's going to reach Hispanics with the gospel. We also introduced Lift Local. We want to meet tangible needs right here in our community. I can't wait in the weeks and months ahead to share with you some of the things that we've been working on and ways that we can mobilize you as an individual to leverage your gifts to care for people right here in our community. And I, 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 I got to focus on my sermon, but here's the thing. Man, we're, I have a, we have a really exciting food ministry that's going to care for a lot of people. And you and I get to be involved through our giving and through our serving. It's going to be awesome. And I can't wait to share that with you. This is the mission. 
It's reaching people with the gospel. And this is Paul's heartbeat. He says, let's go. Let's give back to these churches and let's strengthen these churches. Let's keep them focused on the Great Commission. But the second thing I want you to see in the text is this. Let's pursue biblical conflict resolution. The beginning of Paul's second missionary journey here, it has a rocky start. There's conflict between between Paul and Barnabas regarding Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. Remember back in Acts 13, John Mark, he left the mission team soon after their arrival in Pamphylia. He jumped ship. He walked away. He abandoned them on the first missionary journey. And so Paul does not want to be put in that situation again. There was, look at verse 39, a sharp conflict that arose within church leadership. In the original language, that word for sharp disagreement, it communicates a violent action or emotion. All right, this is not just a spat between siblings. This is an intense conflict, probably raised voices. Paul wanted Mark off the team. Barnabas stood up for his cousin. You see, godly people who love Jesus, who are mature believers, will still have conflict. There are times when maybe it's in your marriage, in your family, in our community, even within our church. There's times where godly people who love Jesus, there's going to be conflict. The question is, when that happens, how do we respond? Well, before we unpack from Scripture how we respond to conflict, I kind of want to call out two extremes that we are in danger of grabbing hold of. Uh, Dispositions, if you would. For some of you in this room, there's the extreme danger of loving conflict. You love it. It's a fight to win. I I win, you lose. I'm going to win the argument and I'm going to bask and I'm going to love the combat. I'm going to love the fight. May I say to you, you need the humility of Christ. That we are not to be as followers of Jesus, people who are contentious, people who love to fight, people who love to cause division, people who love to stir things up and cause hurt in other people's lives. And maybe you have a predisposition in which you just love conflict. You need the humility of Christ. Maybe you're on the opposite of the spectrum and you loathe conflict. You hate it. You avoid it at all costs. You yield to it and say, I'm going to have peace at all costs. I'm not even going to enter into conflict. I'm just going to keep myself in my comfort level. May I say to you, you need the humility of Christ. You see, both loving conflict and loathing conflict are both pride because we're putting ourselves first. Well, how do we resolve this? How do we not love it? And how do we not hate it? Well, the answer is Christ. You see, the answer to conflict is not to be more contentious or more cowardice, but to look to Christ. Jesus is the one who provides peace within our relationships. Why? Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. We know this because he made peace between man and God. 
You see, God and man are at war with one another. We have sinned against God. We have broken his law. We have turned our backs on him and we have gone our own way. And God cannot compromise his holiness and justice. So what do we do? God can't come to us. We can't go to him. We need someone who will represent us both. Enter the Lord Jesus Christ, who 1 Timothy 2.5 is our perfect mediator, the go-between, the one who represents God, the one who represents man. And through his death on the cross, made peace between God and man. And now in and through Jesus, we are now restored back into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings peace. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker who has made peace through his shed blood on the cross. But not only did the cross accomplish peace between God and man, the cross is also where we look for peace with one another. That we see a savior who humbled himself, a savior who did not put himself first, a savior who did not argue back when he was accused, a savior who did not swing his fist when he was punched in the face. We see a Savior who models how we as followers of Jesus respond in conflict with humility, with grace, and with truth. Let's not miss that. That's what John says in John chapter 1, that Jesus, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The way forward in conflict resolution is grace and truth. You need both. And we look to Jesus, who is both. And in him and through him, we see how when there's conflict and there's division and there's disagreement between people, we look unto Jesus, we humble ourselves, and we seek to restore and reconcile our relationships in him and through him. Whether it's in our marriages, in our family, in our friendships, in our church, in our community. We are a people who pursue reconciliation with one another. You see, the Bible says a lot about conflict resolution. We, as followers of Jesus, are to be a people who seek to model reconciliation whenever it comes to conflict. Why? Because we have been reconciled through Christ. Well, as those who have been reconciled to God through Jesus, we now model this. How do we do that? I put this in your notes. Six keys to biblical conflict resolution. The first is this. Pray continually. Pray continually. Prayer is essential when there is a sharp disagreement in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships, when you're at work, when even within the local church, prayer is essential. You see, prayer postures our hearts low. We are seeking the Lord to work in ways that we can't. You see, prayer seeks God's wisdom. It seeks God's humility. It seeks God's perspective. Prayers where we seek God's grace upon the people and the circumstances. 
May we let prayer soak and saturate the entire process of conflict when it occurs. Whenever you enter into conflict, hit your knees. Go to the Lord and ask him to work in ways that you can't. The second thing, pursue humility. Here's the key. You are not out to win an argument. You're out to win the person. You want to win your brother. You want to win your sister. You want to reconcile. You want to have them back. You want to come back into a right relationship. But the key is this. You've got to be willing to humble yourself. And humility means I'm going to examine my actions. I'm going to examine my motivations. And if there's anything in my life that doesn't honor Jesus, if there's any way in which I'm trying to put myself first, I'm going to repent of that, run to Jesus for grace, and pursue humility. Pursuing humility means that you're going to take the log out of your own eye while you try to take the speck out of someone else's. It's a posture of humility where you get, you get low. You think of others as more important than yourself. This is what Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Humility means that you're quick to acknowledge when you're wrong. Husbands, don't miss that. It means you're quick to admit when you're wrong. That happens a lot in my marriage. I'm wrong a lot, y'all. The key is for me humbling myself and saying, ah, you're right. I'm wrong. You have to be willing to humble yourself. You pursue it. The funny thing, I've told you this, the funny thing about humility is the second that you think you've got it, you've lost it. That's why it's a pursuit. You're always chasing after it. It's not a destination. It's a journey. Now, one day we will be humble, ultimately, in the new kingdom. But you see, humility is where you want to win people more than you want to win an argument without compromising truth. Let me say that again. Humility is where you want to win people more than you want to win an argument without compromising truth. All right, truth has to get on the table. You can't acknowledge it. This is not peace at any cost. It's willing to deal with the facts of what is in front of you and you deal with the facts on the table and you don't let emotions dictate how you respond or what you say. You posture your heart with humility. Third thing, go to the person in private first. All right, Jesus teaches us how to approach a brother or sister who is caught in sin through the church discipline process in Matthew 18. Now hear me on this, though not all conflict means there needs to be church discipline. It doesn't. However, I do think that's a really great practice that Jesus is modeling for us. He's teaching for us how we are to deal with conflict and that you want to deal with that person in private. Wisdom means bringing as few people as possible into the conflict. The fourth thing, speak the truth in love with gentleness and respect. Speak the truth in love with gentleness and respect. Paul says this in Galatians 6.1. If someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that, that person with gentleness. 
You see, when you are in conflict, you can't allow your emotions to govern your response. You have received the Holy Spirit, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. That you are able to control how you respond as you lean upon the Holy Spirit. And so when we look at see who God is, that God is love and God is truth, we are to engage conflict in the same way that reflects who he is and what he is like. I've told my kids that if they ever see me acting or speaking in a way that doesn't look like Jesus, they have freedom to speak into my life. I told them I don't want to be one guy on Sunday mornings and then a different guy the rest of the week. And so I've invited them to, to have that access into my life. And I have two rules that they do it privately and they do it respectfully. A while back on a Saturday night, I was in my office at home and I'm studying and preparing and trying to get my message ready for the next day. And my son walked in and shut the door behind him. And he said, hey, Dad, you told me to approach you if there's something that you did or said that doesn't look like Jesus. And the way that you acted tonight while we were watching sports on TV, that didn't look like Jesus. And I said, man, thank you so much. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And I got up and I went downstairs to my kids and I say, listen, that did not look like Jesus. And I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. You see, he handled that exactly right. It's in private, getting as few people involved as possible. It's a posture of humility and grace without compromising truth. This is how we handle it as followers of Jesus. The way that I say it is I try to be a person who is rebukable. Okay, that's not in the dictionary. I made it up. But my question is, are you rebukable? If someone confronts you, they call out a blind spot. They see an area of your character, of your actions, of your words, your attitude that doesn't honor Jesus. When they speak into that, how do you respond? You see, the heart of a mature, humble follower of Jesus is that you receive it. Proverbs says an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. A wise man loves rebuke. It's a good gift to receive that. So I bring that before you today. Did you or will you receive that rebuke? I would like to press pause on our service for just a moment and invite you to pray. We're having a health emergency back here with this person. Just stay by, stay calm, and we're fine. But would you pray for this person back here? We're fine. I'm going to press pause for just a moment. Would you just pray for this woman? Thankful for these men who are caring for her. Would you pray for her? And God would give her grace. Very good. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for this woman. Would you give her great comfort and grace and healing? Would you give her strength? I pray for wisdom for those who are caring for her. And Lord, as she looks for care, I pray you would provide for her. I'm thankful that you are with her and for her and not against her. 
I will pray your hand to be upon her and her family. We trust you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So thankful for our first responders caring for her well. The question is, is that when conflict comes, how do you respond? The next thing I want you to grab hold of is this, and don't miss this. This is really important. Is not only speaking the truth in love with grace, but number five, you give grace generously. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Live in harmony with one another. You see, giving grace generously, it means you're willing to give someone the benefit of the doubt. When you hear that someone's talking about you, you don't confront them with guns blazing. All right, it's, hey, can we, can we talk in private? I wanna just wanna t- discuss something with you. Hey, I've heard this, I could be wrong. I don't wanna create conflict if it's not there, but I just wanna clear this up. Again, it's pursuing a Christ-like humility, grace and truth. You don't stay away from the conflict, but you don't come in ready to start swinging fists. It's a posture of humility and you give grace generously. Sixthly, I also want you to grab hold of this is that you forgive and move forward without gossip, lying, or slander. Conflict is painful, y'all. It's hurt. It hurts when relationships are broken. People are talking bad about one another. When lies start swirling around. I know some of you deal with that in your workplace. Maybe some of you unfortunately have to deal with that even within your own family. You see, the way that you move forward is that you run to Jesus for grace. And when you reconcile with someone, move forward. You forgive. You see, you have been given an Atlantic Ocean size of forgiveness in Christ. You have an overflowing spring of forgiveness that you have in Jesus. And it's already yours. You've already been forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future by the cross. The blood of Jesus was sufficient to cover all of your sins. So now out of the overflow of the forgiveness that you've received in Jesus, you now graciously, freely give it to others. You forgive, Paul says, just as God in Christ forgave you. And so when you reconcile with your brother, when you reconcile with your sister, move forward. It's not time to reconcile and then talk about it with everybody else. It's not time to say, well, let me tell you how I handled it. It's not time to gloat. It's not time to celebrate about how awesome you are. It's a posture of humility and forgiveness and reconciliation. The third big thing I want you to see in the text as we unpack this morning is this, is that we are to trust God's greater purpose through conflict. You gotta trust God's greater purpose through conflict. We see a split that takes place in close relationships right here within the church. And it's hard, y'all. This is painful. Barnabas takes Mark and they set sail west for Cyprus. Paul chooses Silas. They go north by land and then work their way west. So what do we do? What do we make of this clash between Paul and Barnabas? Well, first of all, it's this. These are two titans of the faith. It's a reminder that even godly, mature, faithful followers of Jesus will still have conflict. Being a follower of Jesus does not exempt you from having to have conflict with brothers and sisters. These are not perfect men. 
Now, now Apostle Paul is one of my heroes of the faith. I, I love this man. And God used his writing to lead me to faith in Jesus. But he's not perfect. He's not a perfect man. This is a wake-up call that conflict's going to happen amongst godly people. This is why the psalmist got it right in Psalm 133.1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. A Bible verse that my kids hate having to recite back to me when they're fighting. You see, unity is a good gift that God gives to the church and he gives to relationships. And when you have that unity, you enjoy it, you embrace it, and you protect it. You seek to maintain the unity and the harmony in those relationships because it's a beautiful appetizer of what is coming in the new kingdom. For what is coming in the new kingdom, there's no more church splits. What's coming in the new kingdom is no more divorce, for Jesus will never divorce you. What's coming in the new kingdom is no more backbiting, arguing, gossip, slander. It's crazy to think about, to think about the new kingdom, but this is what's ahead of us. And so whenever God graciously gives it to you in your relationships, you savor it, you protect it to the best of your ability. You enjoy the relationships in which there is true unity and harmony with one another. But do you know what else I rejoice in? Is that not only is there pain in the conflict that God is able to heal through the gospel, God is able to turn around what Satan meant for evil. What started off as a missionary force of Paul and Barnabas is now two missionary forces. Now the gospel is about to go forth to more people about to be reached. So God took what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good and the salvation of the nations. And we see it right here as now these two teams are going in different directions to reach people with the gospel. But you know what also is encouraging? The conflict was eventually resolved. Listen to how Paul refers to Mark later on in his writings. In Philemon, verse 23, Paul says, Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. You see, conflict doesn't have to be ugly, unkind, and unchristlike, and conflict does not have to be permanent. It's amazing to me to think about the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. He's in the city of Rome. He's in, in a Roman prison cell. And Christy and I got to visit it one time. It's awful, awful place. And as he's chained up and he will be beheaded for his faith in Jesus, he writes one last letter to his young protege in the ministry, Timothy. And at the end of his letter, he tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, make every effort to come to me soon because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me in the ministry. You see, at some point, there was reconciliation between Paul and Barnabas and Mark. At some point, they humbled themselves and they came back together and they reconciled. 
What a beautiful picture of the gospel that Jesus is greater than any conflict that we deal with. Maybe you're having to deal with that. You've got conflict in your life and you're just like, oh God, would you please bring peace and harmony? As we seek to apply the principles that we've just laid out, we pursue it. It's not permanent. Now relationships don't always turn out the way that we want them to, but this is what we pursue as followers of Jesus. And this is what I'm asking us to do together as a church. In fact, this is the impact point I'm calling our entire church to. This is the action I'm calling all of us to do, and it's this. Give your life to strengthening the local church. That's what we see right there in verse 41. Paul went throughout Cilicia and Seleucia, strengthening the churches. Strengthening the churches. Coming alongside these local churches. Even in the midst of conflict, he's championing the local church. May I say to you, give your life to strengthening the local church. I'm a little partial, I know it, but I think the local church is the bee's knees. It's the greatest thing ever. I get a front row seat to see teenagers changing light bulbs for widows. I get to see senior adults discipling teenagers. I get to see older women rocking babies in a nursery so that the moms can have a break and come and worship and have Bible study. I see deacons who are on their knees washing feet and caring for people in the community. I see people across this room who are investing in my kids by teaching them the word of God. I see a congregation that is eager to serve and to put the needs of others before themselves. Maybe you're here today and maybe you've been sitting on the sidelines. You're eager to get involved. One of the things I want to encourage you to do, we're calling upon the church today is to get involved in serving. On your way in, there was a document that we put before you that I'm sure is up here in my notes somewhere. And I've lost it already. I'm sure it exists. I feel it. Where'd it go? There it is. At each of the four entrances is a document of ways we need you to serve. This is a way that you get to get on the front lines and get a front row seat of seeing the work of Jesus in and through the local church. That you get to strengthen local churches just as Paul is doing here in Acts 15. That we get to get on the front lines of investing in people who will go and impact their world for Jesus. Now here's the reality. Conflict is going to happen. It just does. But as we pursue Jesus together, as we follow him humbly, as we seek unity and harmony with one another, even those we don't always get along with, even the people who are quirky and different than we are, we pursue the love of Christ the way that he has loved us. We can also trust that God is up to something bigger than we can see. He is working for the fame of his name and the good of his people.